0: Hi, it's Patrick here, and the podcast today is about when you learn a language, maybe for an ulterior reason. You may not actually be interested in learning a language, but you may be interested in doing something else or avoiding doing something else. And and with me here is The Big Show's Clark Boyd, who has done a story on that.
1: Yeah, I like to think I've probably learned bits of languages in the past to avoid doing something, Uh, (laughs) but nothing quite to the extent of this story. So... With the recent revelations about the NSA, I had been looking into the the National Security Agency Agency spying stuff. I I ended up kind of in a backwards way getting into this story about the NSA's old listening station in West Berlin during the Cold War. One of the interesting wrinkles, I think, is, is this idea that a lot of the guys who ended up being stationed there over the years, they specifically went into the Army, they enlisted, and then chose to learn a language like Russian or German, because they knew it was their ticket not to get sent to Vietnam.
0: We just need to add that to uh, the 51st (laughs) reason to learn a language.
1: Right. Well, I I, I probably shouldn't give it away, but uh, it also ended up serving them in yet another ulterior motive, because many of them ended up marrying German women. Oh, there you go. (laughs) Okay, well, let's listen to the piece. After the war, Berlin lay in ruins, its buildings reduced to rubble. For their part, the Russians used tons of that rubble, including parts of Hitler's chancellery, to build a giant war memorial in what would become Soviet East Berlin. Others were busy, too. On the western edge of the city, the British and American authorities used their rubble to create a hill. That's a BBC documentary. The hill was built on top of a never-completed Nazi military technical college designed by Albert Speer. The new hill was dubbed Teufelsberg, German for Devil's Mountain. Okay, at 260 feet, it was hardly a mountain, but it was definitely tall enough for the NSA to point antennas hundreds of miles into East Germany.
2: What's the rule? You know, when you want to find a needle in a haystack, first you get a haystack. Edward
1: Richardson, now a lawyer, served in the 60s with the 78th Army Security Agency Special Operations Unit, or ASA as it was called, at Teufelsberg. Richardson had enlisted and opted for Russian language training in hopes of not being sent to Vietnam. It worked. They sent him to West Berlin in 1965 to the listening station at Teufelsberg. There, hidden under giant, slightly menacing-looking domes, the antennas picked up all kinds of radio traffic from the east. And 24-7, Richardson says, the Americans used dozens of vacuum tube radios and reel-to-reel tape recorders to monitor at all. This was kind of the Pleistocene era of communications.
2: So the operators would sit there all night and just wait for one of the little lines on the green screen to wiggle, and they'd start the tape recorder. And they'd hand the tapes over to a transcriber or to a scanner who would go through the tapes. And then we'd send the the hard copy out to to Frankfurt, which went on to uh, NSA or ASA headquarters.
1: Richardson was tasked with focusing on Soviet troop movements in East Germany.
2: We would uh, transcribe uh, artillery fire missions, uh, anti-aircraft missions, uh, tank traffic. We didn't care what they were saying. What we cared about was who was saying it and where were they saying it from. Nobody was interested in listening to people's conversations. They were interested in where are they and who are they. That's all you cared about, you know.
1: Kind of the original, we're only looking at your metadata, I guess. Anyway, Richardson remembers some funny moments like near daybreak, when weird frequency bounces meant you'd sometimes hear Moscow cabbies chatting. Other times, he said, you'd decode a message saying that a Soviet artillery unit was targeting Teufelsberg, only to realize it was a hoax. Yikes. While Richardson worked on the Soviets, Don Cooper listened in on telephone calls between East German government officials.
3: Some days it was other days, it was just excruciatingly boring. They'd be discussing agriculture reports, you know, if they were having a bad crop of potatoes. Usually, on, if we were on the graveyard shift, we'd, uh, or even a lot of times after about 8 o'clock at night, uh, we'd switch over to Radio Luxembourg and listen to rock and roll.
1: But, Cooper says, he does remember hearing one interesting conversation. Walter Ulbricht, Uncle Walter as he was called, was the East German leader at the time. And Cooper overheard Uncle Walter's then second in command, Eric Honecker, arranging a hunting trip.
3: Walter wanted to go deer hunting up in the northern part of the, of the country, and they were making sure that he would get a deer by. They drugged the poor thing. When it kind of st- staggered out, Wal- Walter would take a shot at it, and they had a uh, sharpshooter with a silencer on his rifle to make sure that the deer went down. So Walter got his deer.
1: And the Americans, well, they got a bit of insight into how East Germany worked at the time. Cooper details all of this in his book, Sea Trick, named after the shift he worked. He says that, officially, the Army Security Agency was never in Berlin. The guys in the outfit couldn't even wear their unit patch on their uniforms. And if a German asked, Cooper says, you had to tell them, I'm a clerk in the Berlin Brigade. He remembers trying that out one night at a place called the White House Bar.
3: I was sitting in there and enjoying myself and, and a couple of Germans, sitting with a couple of uh, Berliners, and they asked, you know, uh, you uh, you American? And obviously with, a, with the military haircut that I had at the time, I said, oh yeah. I said, what unit are you with? And I said, oh, I'm a clerk at Berlin Brigade. And they, both of them laughed and said, oh, you're ASA.
1: So much for top secret. was, of course, plenty of spy versus spy going on in those post-war decades, the Soviets built their own listening station on a hill in East Berlin. Chris McLaren served with the ASA at Teufelsberg in the 1970s.
4: And so long as they listened to the West and we listened to the East, uh, things went fine. Because I think after 1980, the real big danger was surprise, panic, and overreaction, military overreaction. And since we were all listening, no surprise, no panic, no overreaction. So it worked very well.
1: McLaren ended up marrying a Berliner and staying on in the city after he left the army. He watched as the fall of the wall and reunification brought an end, eventually, to the NSA's listening station on Teufelsberg.
4: Reunification was 1990. The, uh, from what I understand, the Americans listened in just to make sure for another year. Just to make sure everything was straight. And then they dismantled the place, so I think operations actually probably finished at the end of ninety one or 1992.
1: And Teufelsberg itself, all those buildings with the strangely shaped domes, well, it's fallen into almost complete disrepair. Check on YouTube and you'll find artists and musicians who love to visit the eerie place for inspiration. Many development ideas have been floated for Teufelsberg, a hotel, luxury apartments, a spa, but none of them has worked out. The locals, I'm told, aren't too keen on these ideas. Christopher McLaren is part of a group that gives organized tours of the now derelict and dangerous buildings. At a minimum, he says, he'd like to see a small museum built to highlight the history of the place. He says that while Berliners are typically keen to forget the past and move on, they do pause to consider Teufelsberg's history. 80% of the people he leads on tours, McLaren tells me, are Berliners.
4: It's very much in at this point. Um, people are really interested in this place. And I think, and I always think, when you go through the place, since I know what it was what it was like before, the place is in terrible, uh, terrible condition. You know, I think it's absolutely ruined. But for the people who were never there before, this is all fascinating stuff.
1: And no, McLaren says, there hasn't been an uptick in tour requests since the recent revelations about the NSA's massive data snooping program. Instead, he tells me, it's just a steady stream of people coming every weekend despite the notoriously bad Berlin weather to look out over a now unified city and country. For The World, this is Clark Boyd.
0: Clark is back with us again. And and Clark, we just heard from Christopher McLaren, he used his language skills to Get married to a and, local woman and
1: continues to. I mean, he left the army after tour. His once his tour was up, uh, so he was out by the mid seventies. Stayed in Berlin because he got married to a German woman. Ended up, you know, teaching at Berlitz, working for the USO. Uh, doing background checks on people working at Teufelsberg. So here's a guy who, you know, he had learned German actually before he was in the army, but the language served him very well in in his life as it went forward.
0: Hmm. And what about some of the others? Did the language
1: sort of stay with them beyond their service in the military? Well, Don Cooper, who you heard there, who wrote the book, Sea Trick, he came back and was a local newspaper reporter in about six different states in the U.S. Uh, He can still come up. With some German and Mm -hmm. spoke it, you know, quite well in various places when I interviewed him. Uh, But it's not something that he continued to use a lot of. Edward Richardson, who you heard at the beginning of the piece, uh, who learned Russian, he had a really interesting story. He he didn't use his Russian so much when he came back, but he did go and tour the Monterey Language Institute, which is the defense's – one of the main Department of Defense places where they teach languages is out in California. Right. We've done a couple of podcasts on it, and I'll, I'll post links to those. He said the most interesting thing was that after 25 years, he decided to go back and take a tour of it just to see what it was like. He said, nobody is learning Russian anymore. Everybody's learning Asian languages. A lot of people are learning Urdu and Pashto and things like that. And he said, it just goes to show you how much the world's changed. Wow. Well, Clark, thanks very much. You're welcome, Patrick.
0: Okay, that's it for another pod. I'll post those links at theworld.org slash language. There'll also be Clark's blog post on this story. And I'm sure there'll be a couple of pictures and stuff like that. The world.org slash language. Also, the World in Words Facebook page. And I tweet as Patrick Cox. That's P-A-T-R-I-C-O-X. See you next time.